Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Is Beyonce a poet? How about Taylor Swift or Billy Joel or Bob Dylan? For many of us, we've probably never sat down to consider the merits of pop music as poetry, but that's not the case for Adam Bradley. He's a professor of English and a founding director of the Laboratory for Race and Popular Culture, or Rap Lab, both at the University of Colorado Boulder. And he's also written a book, The Poetry of Pop. Adam, thank you for coming on today. Great to be here, Michael. So to start with, uh, how does someone begin to listen to pop music? And you're defining uh, pop fairly broadly here to encompass all sorts of genres. Um, how do you start to find the poetry in that? Well, you could go your entire life listening to music and not thinking about you know, dactylic trimeter or you know, metaphor or metonymy or any of these kinds of matters. You know, music is, is in our ears, wherever we are. That said, I've learned through my experience as a, as a lover of music first and as a lover of literature as well, that when the two come together, something magical occurs, that songwriters and the performers who give life to those songs are creating something that very much is in keeping with the spirit of the poetic tradition. And there, there was a bit of, I guess, controversy is the right word, but uh, with Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize for mm-hmm. Literature recently. Um, does, did that surprise you, or does that sort of validate what you're saying here? Well, it didn't surprise me that he won, and it didn't surprise me that there was controversy. I mean, to, for some people, the idea of uh, ascribing the term literature to a songwriter, to a pop star, which is really what Bob Dylan is, is, is uh, breaking any number of different commandments, I think. <laughs> the, the, the tension comes in this. The tension comes in the understanding of the term literature, of the term poetry, as an honorific rather than a descriptor. And by that I mean that we, we often get the sense that when we call something poetry, it's somehow elevated. It's somehow uh, at, at some sort of level beyond our normal everyday activities, whereas we usually experience songs as, as shot through those everyday activities. So that tension exists where we think, well, someone who, who you know, has written music that I play at my father's funeral, some, someone who's written music that I play at, at my daughter's wedding, whatever the case may be for you know, people who love Dylan and, and who think about his music in the, the grain of their lives, for them to then think of it in terms of something like poetry would seem so distant, so aloof, so cold, creates a, a cognitive dissonance. Uh, now, where I come in is to say that however you understand Dylan in relation to your your taste, in relation to your experience as a lover of music, however you think of it in those terms, he is using the same tools as T.S. Eliot or Emily Dickinson or whomever you might think of in the poetic tradition. He is forging language through rhyme, rhythm, fig- figurative language of all types. Yes, he's doing it to song. That's an added complication, but that in itself is not a rupture from the broader tradition of poetry, which was born in song, which was born to the music of the lyre. Yeah, and, you know, how does, 
for for music as poetry, is it, in your opinion, is it something that exists with the music, or can you can you say take the lyrics out of it and and have it stand alone as its own poetry? You know, the lyric has a complex relationship and multifaceted relationship to its music and song. Uh, at times, the music can engulf and even nearly efface the lyric, can be rendered, uh, make the, the, the language almost inaudible or mm-hmm. indecipherable. Think about, uh, I don't know, Kurt Cobain screaming through teen spirit, a mulatto and albino, a mosquito, my libido, all of that. I mean, this, this seeming uh, piling up of, of these terms that don't have a clear associative logic or any kind of <laughs> logic one way or another to them <laughs> mm-hmm. to have a more more uh, what we might call a, a, a kind of um, abstract connection that, that exists both in sound and in sense. And you take something like that and, and you, you think, well, the music may be actually cutting against comprehension of the lyric, mm-hmm. whereas in Dylan's music, much of it foregrounds the lyric, where the, the the instrumentation may simply be uh, Dylan's own acoustic guitar in some of his recordings, may put the language on a pedestal and have us understand its own small music that words themselves themselves often create. So, I mean, d- depending on genre, depending on an individual artist, depending on the nature of sound recording, all these different factors can uh, help to dictate the relationship between the word and the music and that's part of the richness too because it demands a different kind of listening from us as well mm-hmm. the way that we listen the way that we take in the music is conditioned by these choices that songwriters and producers and sound engineers and a host of other people make in the process of getting a composition from their minds to our ears yeah and this idea of you know you mentioned genres there is there do you think um, a genre that's particularly conducive to maybe this this idea of poetry or is, does it span multiple genres um, you know is there is do you think there's one that really stands out? It's a great question. I make a case that we can think of all genres as employing elements of poetics. So you know again thinking of of poetry not as an honorific, not as a mantle of some sort of uh, cultural esteem, but as a pure description of what someone is doing with language. Mm-hmm. That applies equally to uh, Taylor Swift, as it does to Dylan, as it does to Joni Mitchell, as it does to Stevie Wonder, as it does to Jay-Z. It applies across all these traditions of, of, of difference in genre, in time, in a host of things. Mm-hmm. That said, there are certain genres that comport themselves on the page as poems, perhaps in, in more uh, intriguing ways than others. And, and there are songs, in fact, that, that demonstrate the full range of uh, the poetry of Pop's capacity. I mean, the, the song to me that epitomizes both the, the page-born attention that some song lyrics provide and the utter abandon uh, that sometimes the poetry of pop does, abandoning itself into sound, is something like the Beatles' Hey Jude. Mm-hmm. This is a Paul McCartney composition from 68, and, 
and if you listen to it, the first three minutes are so structured. Mm-hmm. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. I and mean, we know these words. And, mm-hmm. and undergirding those lines is this interlocking structure of rhyme. Bad, sad, heart, start. You know, all of those elements of, of both uh, rhymes at the end of lines and in between mm-hmm. uh, in the body of the, the line as well. So you have this highly structured form that, that follows through most of the lyric for, through the first three minutes. And then something crazy happens. <laughs> around 304, 305, around around that moment. And you know, Paul McCartney says, better, 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 better. And then, oh, and, and it enters into this next section. The next four minutes are essentially na, 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 hey, Jew. Mm-hmm. Over and over in this mantric sensibility. And so to me, this, this single song embodies the full sense of what the poetry of pop looks like. The first half, something that you, I could take into my English class and have a group of first-year students study uh, rhyme structure, study the balance, the equipoise of, of uh, stresses and syllables in, in lines, have them study that formal uh, attention that McCartney gives to, the, to the, the lines. And then I could take in that last four minutes and say this, too, is the poetry of pop, abandonment into this zone uh, of sound, more than sense, mm-hmm. uh, a, a structure that's built on repetition, repetition that would seem almost overmuch, <laughs> except for the ways that the Beatles, through interjecting little changes of, of harmony, little subtle shifts that they make, and sometimes not so subtle <laughs> shifts in those last four minutes, create something that is equally pleasing, and I would arg- argue equally part of the poetry of pop. So... Um... Aside from maybe the Beatles or specifically Hey Jude, who are some of your other uh, favorite poets in pop music? Oh man, I mean, one of the, the wonderful aspects of working on this book, and I've spent pretty much the last five years writing it and pretty much my entire life thinking about <laughs> it, uh, is to cross all these genres. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spent so much of my recent years working specifically in hip-hop and and publishing with the LUP, the anthology of rap, Mm -hmm. and and writing other kinds of of books about hip-hop. It was a a tremendous homecoming to listen to Guns N' Roses again, (laughs) (laughs) to listen to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, to Mm -hmm. listen to Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin, to return to these artists who, uh, both in writing lyrics and in interpreting lyrics. Another element of, I think, the broadly understood poetry is, is in the interpretation of great lyric uh, by a singer. Mm-hmm. In, in doing that, it's been a, a marvelous return. So, I mean, among the handful of, of songwriters that come to mind would be Van Morrison, mm-hmm. would be the, 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 the great Chuck Berry, whom we just lost, mm-hmm. would be... Uh, you know, Taylor Swift, in a strange way, I, I would I would add her into the mix, both as a songwriter and someone who is also part of the new economy of songcraft, mm-hmm. where she works with producers who have a major role in the structuring of a song mm. uh, and carries her particular vision, her particular sense of what she wants to say into that collaborative space of songwriting. So that too is a it's a a wonderful and rich 
place to think about how pop songs come to life, how uh, matters of poetics function when it's created by something close to committee rather than a single artist. And that's, that's, that's been fascinating as well. Yeah, I remember reading a, a story once um, about uh, The Stranger by Billy Joel, and there's that whistling mm-hmm. sequence in there. And I guess when he was originally recording it, he had this whole idea planned for it, and he, w- he was not sure what instrument it should be played on this intro. And he, so he's whistling the tune, and the producer, I can't, I can't remember, it was somebody, one of the sort of legendary producers at the time, uh, said, that's it, you're, you're just going to whistle it, that's, that's the way it should be. And so, and now that's probably one of the more famous <laughs> whistling sequences in a song, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, those moments of, of serendipity, the ways that increasingly popular music is composed, not on the page, not through... Uh, you know, carried around through lead sheets as in the Tin Pan Alley days and the mm-hmm. days of the Brill Building, but it's composed on uh, on the fly in these I- impromptu and, and improvisational settings. Uh, that's that's wonderful too, because it can lead you to some some moments that are unexpected, just like that. I mean, I, I know one that I'm close to uh, with uh, the rapper and actor Common. Mm-hmm. whom I uh, worked with on producing his memoir a few years back. Mm-hmm. He tells the story of recording one of his uh, biggest hits, a song called The Light. And he, he had a, a rhythm pattern in mind. And this often happens in rap where you get a sense of the rhythm structure but not necessarily the words mm-hmm. precisely in place. And he had a, a, a place where he just says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, something like that, just to, <laughs> to remind, for him, remind him for a future reference of the, the particular cadence that he wanted. Mm-hmm. And similarly to, to what you described, he and the producer decided that they liked it just like that. <laughs> and he's talking about what he'll tell the, the woman he loves and, and the fact that a lot of us find ourselves in that position when it comes to love of being tongue-tied, of being of only having the rhythms and maybe not the words of our, our meaning and feeling. And that, that seems like, to me, one of the signature things that, that we see emerging in, in popular music that distinguishes it in this last half century from the half century before, where you know, Cole Porter and, and Gershwin and, and Berlin, you had these iconic figures who mm-hmm. were driven by the page uh, first and had attention to the ear, the way their words sounded, but also spent so much time honing their language on the page as, as we come to expect of page-born poetry. Uh, here we have something closer at times to a spoken word, to a, uh, the, the more improvisational modes of, of avant-garde poets, sound poets, and others who, who use this other uh, capacity of the mind to create uh, beyond the, the strictures and the, and the demands of the page alone. Yeah, going back uh, to that idea of rhythm that you were just talking about, it reminds me of sort of a funny and dear to my heart uh, little anecdote you share in the book uh, where you talk about uh, your daughter's hearing the first, I think, the first few seconds of Drake's Hotline Bling, and then you have to find the kids' bop version so that they can listen to it. As the father of an eight-year-old, I have also uh, many times had to (laughs) switch it over to the kids' bop version. Um, So, 
What about, so we've talked sort of about the lyrics, obviously, for poetry and the music. Yeah. What about the, the artists themselves, their image? And maybe this applies more to uh, artists who are sort of cultivate this brand and image more strongly, Lady Gaga or somebody like David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Um, does that factor in as well to the overall sense of poetry? Sure. Persona, I guess, would be the term that we would use in the literary context to, to understand the character that uh, authors conjure within a work. Mm-hmm. The persona of uh, a, a particular voice, a particular eye who's speaking to us. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to pop music performance, that persona expresses itself not only in the lyrics and in the, the recorded performance, but in often the, the, the very being of, of individuals. I mean, we see it certainly in, in uh, instances like you mentioned with Lady Gaga, who self-consciously crafted this protean persona, in, in a sense, and shift so many times to, mm-hmm. to suit whatever context she's in. Mm-hmm. And she's still unable fully to be pinned down, whether she's you know, showing up in a meat dress <laughs> or she's on stage crooning with Tony Bennett right, or right. she's you know, on stage twerking uh, you know, with Beyonce. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that where she uh, has given herself the space to create multiple persona. Now, then, of course, we also have instances like Kiss and, and uh, Guar and, and Extreme, <laughs> I guess, right. would be an example where, or, or, or in the, the, the more dance-oriented realm, Daft Punk, uh-huh where the conscious obscuring of the person mm-hmm. through a mask or makeup or, or other kind of costume creates a, a, a space for creativity, for inhabiting uh, a changeable persona by virtue of that mask. It's, it's a wonderfully complex thing that, that relates at times to what these artists do in inhabiting the identities they craft in the lyric in the lyric eye and the stories that they tell as well. And it, it, it testifies to the way that the poetry of pop is shot through our culture, not just in the sounds, but in the sights as well, through music video, through performance, through style, through all of these other embodiments that take root because of the sound. Yeah, I mean, and then you have somebody like, you know, Springsteen, who's sort of this blue-collar, you know, poet, I guess. And he's kept that for, for many, many, many years uh, as sort of his uh, image, I guess, and it definitely informs or, you know, vice versa, his his yeah. music. And no, no less a persona than Marilyn Manson, just a little bit less makeup. Right, right, right. Although maybe more and more these days, you never know. <laughs> Hey, you got to keep looking fresh. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I hear he, that either of us. <laughs> yeah, well, I he what does he put on like four-hour shows or something? <laughs> I don't know how he does. Yeah, you, you have to have you have to have some some serious uh, stamina, but also love <laughs> for performance. And, yeah, I mean, a Springsteen show is is a a testament to you know really so much of the best of what the poetry of pop has to offer. The storytelling. In my storytelling chapter, I spent so much time with Springsteen Mm -hmm. because he is so attentive to recording the lives of individuals that maybe otherwise wouldn't make it into public consciousness. 
mm-hmm. of, of telling uh, other people's stories and using his platform uh, to give voice to to uh, these kinds of of uh, these kinds of figures that otherwise might slip through the cracks. Yeah, and I mean that sort of leads into another question of. You know, you've talked about Gershwin, you've talked about, we've talked about Lady Gaga, Springsteen. How has uh, the poetry of pop changed over the decades as musical tastes have changed? Mm. It's a big one. And, you know, this was something I, I thought a lot about. Is is there uh, an historical trajectory or even a some sort of grand narrative of, or group of narratives that could tell the story of this essentially hundred-year period of, of popular music mm-hmm. and the, I was even thinking of structuring the book in a historical sense mm-hmm. but you know what what I found Michael was that that the connections were often not uh, well they didn't they didn't behave in the way that I would have <laughs> liked they didn't uh, <laughs> stay within their historical space right and so I found myself listening to Fred Astaire singing uh, a, a song right after hearing Beyonce singing <laughs> her song and, and hearing connections across that you know, vast gap of time uh, be, between you know, putting on the Ritz and single ladies <laughs> that, that you know, demanded uh, that I acknowledge a continuity that goes through craft, mm-hmm. a continuity that goes through rhythm and rhyme and figurative language, but also through voice, through storytelling, through style. That's finally the form I came to, and it's one that, that actually doesn't respect history <laughs> that much, and in fact mm-hmm. acknowledges the fluidity, the flexibility, and, and the, the surprise that we can find in, in listening to a song. I mean, uh, to me, there's there's something that will always sound fresh about certain Cole Porter songs. Mm-hmm. It'll always sound youthful, and it'll always sound like it's music that I shouldn't let my parents know that I'm listening <laughs> to, <laughs> even though I'd have to go back to maybe to my great grandparents to find them hearing it for the first time. Yeah, you know, the best popular music always has that capacity, either through direct nostalgia. Uh, of our own experience, the way that I listen now to Guns N' Roses through the the, the ears of my nine-year-old self, mm-hmm. but also through a, a kind of indirect or, or collective nostalgia that takes us back to the renegade nature of, of some of these recordings when they first came out. You know, one of the wonderful experiences that I have, and I, you, you may have it as well, is introducing uh, my children, my two daughters, to, to music and, mm-hmm. and one of the latest things we've been doing is playing uh, the Beatles we've been playing Rubber Soul I have that uh-huh. in the car and we, we listen to it almost every day for the last month or so <laughs> and right. now to know that my three year old knows the songs mm-hmm. and, and can request them <laughs> you know, baby you can drive my car yes I want to be a star ha- hearing her little three year old voice <laughs> sing it yeah. and imagining my mother hearing that for first for the first time when she was a teenager, hearing that song come out, and thinking that it still has that same energy and freshness, and that's that's what to me kept the book as fluid and open as it is, where it can it can make these kinds of unexpected connections that bridge 
genre and time period. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it is funny, like you're saying with your daughters, I, I have the same experience. Uh, I have two daughters as well. And, you know, this idea that there, there are these songs about events or times that I wasn't even around for, and yet they're listening yeah. to them and enjoying them just as much. And it, it's sort of a testament to how good songwriting can sort of transcend even, uh, you know, the, the sort of historical boundaries, as you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's durable stuff. And you know, one of the, the things that I, I tell people, because I'll sometimes hear from folks, well, don't you, don't you essentially, to quote Wordsworth, murder to dissect? <laughs> is, is analyzing popular music taking the fun away? Mm-hmm. And what I say is that songs are durable things. Mm-hmm. They're made of durable stuff. And for me, the attention that focusing on lyric gives uh, enhances that pleasure. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me appreciate the art of the songwriter and the art of the singer. It makes me find other points of connection, sometimes points of connection to music that I otherwise would not have a way of, of, of making my own. And yet it also allows me in the end, if I want to, to go right back to that naive listening, to listening purely with a sense of, of singing out loud in the car, or in the shower, maybe even singing the wrong words, but singing with all your heart. Mm-hmm. And, and pop music of all types can do just that, can give you a space for exercising your intellect, for decoding, for playing around and thinking about form. And then discarding it all and returning to the full pleasure of the sound alone. So, what was uh, what was your first concert? Do you remember? Man, <laughs> well, I, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I, uh-huh. I, I, I was an unlikely hip hop fan. Uh-huh. Uh, growing up, as far as I was uh, from the the centers of hip hop in the '80s of New York and later mm-hmm. Los Angeles. And so the first show I wanted to go to was De La Soul. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first show I ended up going to, however, was, was a, a jazz concert uh-huh. by a, a pianist named Marcus Roberts, who played for a long time with Wynton Marsalis, the great trumpet play, mm-hmm. player. And, and my mother took me to the show, took me and took my brother, uh, this open-air show downtown Salt Lake City, and Marcus Roberts, who's blind, Mm-hmm. Uh, was was uh, ushered up to the stage and sat down and, and put his fingers on the keys and and all of a sudden it was just transfixed. <laughs> was was as if you know he could not just see and hear and have access to all those senses, but he made us see and hear more acutely by virtue of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, that particular live performance sticks in my mind and and has carried with me whether i'm seeing seeing uh you know the the roots of something in a, at a small club like i did in college in mm-hmm. the 90s or, mm-hmm. or whether i'm going to see guns and roses in a huge uh <laughs> arena like i'm going to do this fall <laughs> I mean, that that same point of entry uh, into the the passion of the performer and, and uh Getting swept up in that is is what to me drives me to to live performance, and it's very different from the space that I'm in, in uh, the the context of of analyzing the the figures and forms and rhythms and rhymes and and, and that, and yet they find connection. 
because ultimately they are connected. Ultimately, those those structures, those seeming limitations that form puts in place, allows for the abandon, gives artists what they need to to create. The rules are just as important as the freedom. Any artist knows that, and and pop artists display it so powerfully, so poignantly. So. I have to ask, because we've talked about such a wide range, um, and I don't even know if this is still a thing, but when I was a kid, we used to sort of envision what would be on our, our desert island mixtape. So what, what, what are some of the things that would be on yours? Oh, man, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful thing to reflect on and, <laughs> and, and uh, something that any music lover has likely thought through. And to, to me, part of it, part of my choice for my desert island discs would be driven by nostalgia. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not necessarily always the greatest album in the world <laughs> right. or the, the the most wonderful performance. Some of it is is pure nostalgia, uh, and and so I would put uh, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction mm-hmm. on there. Is that that uh, I remember having that album and, and playing it over and over again and imagining myself as as Slash and then as Axel and and just switching around and playing air guitar to my heart's content <laughs> and that song allowed me to access certain emotions that mm-hmm. as a preteen I, I i didn't really know how best to express mm-hmm. and beside that I'd, I'd put michael jackson's thriller mm-hmm. a, an album that i think everybody of my generation owns mm-hmm. uh, something that that has a real personal significance for me as a, a biracial kid black and white growing mm-hmm. up in a predominantly white area and and having that the beautiful blackness of of michael jackson (laughs) pre-surgery on that cover Mm -hmm. and hearing his voice hearing his sense of of soul and style and and having that connection is one of the really defining parts of of my identity and then moving forward thinking about some of the the albums that have come out more recently it's always hard to know i mean you might put your money on on something and then find out that you really don't like listening to it uh, 10 years from now <laughs> right. uh, to, to me I'd, I'd have to put uh, some hip hop on there some mm-hmm. current hip hop and I'd, I'd have uh, Chance the Rapper's Ask mm-hmm. Rap mm-hmm. the second mixtape and, and as a way of, of connecting to this this period of time this last five years that we're living in and in and, and, and all it's richness and complexity and, and frustrations and his his style speaks to that to all of that just his his approach to rapping his melodic sensibility his madcap humor it's all there so those are those are a few and again it, it displays the same eclecticism that we've been talking about all along but you know i i think in, in talking to people as i've been writing the book most of us have that kind of listening experience even though we might portray want to portray ourselves in the public sense as having uh, more more defined tastes <laughs> more more uh, clearly legible tastes I think most of us uh, are, are a complex and sometimes mm-hmm. contradictory blend of, of all these different sounds well Adam thank you very much for coming on today it's just a lot of fun I really enjoyed it Yeah, me too. Thank you. Uh, The book is The Poetry of Pop, and it's available wherever books are sold. 
That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Talk to you next time.